Good morning. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to spend the majority of our time there. John chapter 1, just looking at the first 18 verses there. It's good to see everyone out tonight. I made a comment. I, haven't, I, I was very curious as to why there was so much red in the audience. It didn't dawn on me. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense uh, this time of year. Um, it's wonderful to see people here uh, this morning. We see uh, family members here, which is great to see as well. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1 this morning. If you're familiar with, the, with John's account of, of the gospel, you know that it's quite different than the others. Um, there may be a number of reasons for that. We're not really going to get into that. But we, you, we can acknowledge that it's pretty different than the others. It's said that the style of writing in John is quite different uh, than the other Gospels. Like, it was written in a very simple form uh, of Greek, unlike some of the others, and some li- unlike some of the other uh, letters uh, written in the New Testament. Not, not, not that I really know much about that. I read it somewhere, though. Um, Not only that, but a lot of the stories themselves are quite unique to the Gospel of John. Not that they contradict the other uh, Gospel accounts, but they are unique to the Gospel of John. For instance, the first miracle that Jesus performs, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus being another one. You might think that that would be recorded in other Gospel accounts. You get the teachings of of, uh, Jesus being the Good Shepherd. Those intimate conversations that he has with his disciples on the night before he's, he's betrayed, those are unique uh, to John's account. But what's also unique is what John leaves out of his gospel account. Uh, there's no transfiguration. Uh, there's no parables. Uh, he doesn't open up with genealogies like Matthew and Luke. He doesn't open up with the birth of Jesus, which you might think, well, maybe we'd go there this morning. But we're going to look at what John opens up with in John chapter 1. Because what John opens up with is this prologue. It's like this little miniature version of the entire book, jam-packed into 18 verses. And I believe the, the, the intent of this is to kind of get you clued in on what he's going to talk to you about. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is a beautiful beautiful passage that eloquently teaches us who Jesus is. We just sang a song about you are my, and then fill the blank. We're going to be looking at what Jesus is to us, according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. But before we get into the text, I think it's important to note the the style in which John 1, verses 1 through 18, was was written in. It's my belief that John 1 is written in this, this chiastic Structure, which is really uh, just a ten-cent word for what I have on the screen right here. Uh, it's a chiasm, which means that you have point A, which is going to be at the beginning, and then the very end of that passage is going to be a mirror passage of, of point A. Not that they're saying the exact same thing, but they're saying something similar, right? Point A is going to be reflected by point A, which is going to be at the end of the passage. Then you're going to have some middle points that mirror one another as well, kind of gearing up towards this main point. Not that all chiasms have like a point C or something like that, but oftentimes it's trying to build to what's actually in the middle of of the passage. Um, This is pretty different than the way we usually do storytelling, the way we usually speak. We usually are trying to build up to that main point. When I was teaching writing, what I would often tell kids, whatever your weakest argument is, just kind of put it in the middle because most likely people will forget it by the end. What you really want is your strongest one at, at at the end. Well, that's not this particular form of writing. This particular form of writing puts the most important point 
right there in the middle. And this isn't unique to John. Actually, a lot of Old Testament scripture is written in, in chiasms. It could be chapters that are kind of composed in that way, just different ones within the Psalms, things like that. But even outside of scripture, a lot of different writers have used this type of structure. I believe John is using this type of structure to communicate a message. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, with this structure in mind, hoping to coordinate our discussion. And what I hope we'll see, as the rest of the world is thinking more and more about the birth of Jesus, which is a wonderful thing, by the way, what I want to talk about this morning, well, who is that person? Who is Jesus? And I believe John chapter 1 gives you a pretty good indication as to who Jesus is. But even more than that, what does the reality of Jesus demand of, of us? That's what I want to look at this morning. So, using this structure in mind, let's go ahead and jump into the text. The first points that we'll see is going to be John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then that mirror passage, verses 16 through 18. Let's read John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What we see in these first five verses is the word from the beginning and with His Creation. It opens up with, in the beginning. Does that ring any bells, by the way? Have you heard that anywhere before? Right? John opens up the gospel the same way the Old Testament scriptures open up. In the beginning. In the beginning. Opens up the same way as Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks a creation into existence. And it says that the Word existed in the beginning because it was with God. Right? But then on top of that, except that it wasn't just with God, it was God. All right, so John opens up with two pretty confusing concepts. I think the first being is that something can uh, exist without having been created. Genesis 1 opens up with that same difficult concept, that God created everything into being, but nothing created God. And here, in John chapter 1, the Word is given that very same distinction, that the Word created, and yet nothing created Him. And the second confusing concept that's brought out is that something can be both with something and then be that something at, at the same time. That doesn't really register to us, but it says that the Word was with God and the Word was God. I believe what we're seeing just in verse 1 is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God Himself. And not only that, but He is the eternal Creator of all things. Jesus, or this Word, is given that association as one who has created all things. He played a role in, in creation, and not just any role, but everything was created by Him. And then it says it in the negative as well. It says, apart from Him, nothing came into being. This Word is given the distinction as one who is playing a special role in creation. Again, think back to Genesis 1, where God created all things with what? With His Word. He spoke these things into existence. But then the Word also plays this special role in the creation of, of mankind. Life existed in the Word, and it says that He gave it to man. And this life is called light. 
This life was light. Not in the literal sense, like in Genesis chapter 1, but in the figurative sense. that This word gave uh, light to man, gave uh, meaning to man, gave direction, gave joy, something that darkness could not comprehend. And again, I mentioned before that John chapter 1 is supposed to be this little miniature version of John. Well, later on in the gospel, Jesus himself says that he is the light of the world. John 8 verse 12. And then again in John chapter 9 and verse 5. And he says in a different gospel, Matthew 5 and verse 14, that because of that, we are also lights of the world. Because of the light that he has given us, that we are going to be lights of the world. Paul mentions something very similar in Philippians 2 and verse 15. But what makes this title such a strong statement, giving him, calling him the light and life of man, what makes this title so significant are passages like Psalm 36. In Psalm 36, the same distinction is given of God. Psalm 36 and verse 7 says, How precious is your, is your loving kindness, O God. And then he goes on in verse 9, says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. God himself is given the distinction as both the light and life of man. So this idea, uh, G- John is giving Jesus this same distinction, giving him the title of the light and life of man, that same title that was given to God. Let's look at the mirror passage there at the end of this passage, John 1, now beginning in verse 16. Verse 16 says, For of His fullness we have, been, we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any, at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Interestingly enough, John doesn't identify the Word as Jesus until verse 17. And even there, he doesn't really make it extremely obvious that, you know, that word that I was talking about, that is Jesus. It's almost as if, uh, if you're reading this just from verse 1 all the way through verse 18, there's this great anticipation. Well, who is this word? What is this word? And you get to verse 17, and I believe John is making the distinction that this word, this light, this life is Jesus. And he, John says, is the fullness of grace, that He exceeds the grace and truth found in the law of Moses. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of grace and truth. And this grace and truth was, re- was received by man in that they've seen it, they, they, they've witnessed it, they've seen these things, they, they are witnesses of these things. And this is the light that no one had ever seen before. This word, this life, this light has been explained and it has been revealed in Jesus. And Jesus is now back with the Father. He is with, in the bosom of the Father. If you go back to uh, John 1 and verse 1, Jesus was with God. And now here in verse 18, He is back with God. In this first section, we see that Jesus is God He is the eternal creator of all things, the light and life of man, and this perfect manifestation of grace and truth. But he's building on this. In point B, we see another section, two mirror sections, verses 6 through 9. You get the testimony of John the Baptist. Then you get another testimony of John the Baptist in verses 14 through 15, as well as a testimony of John the Apostle. Let's read that uh, that section there, verses 6 through 9. 
John 1, beginning in verse 6, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming uh, into the world, enlightens every man. John the Baptist comes in, and he serves as a witness, but a different type of witness, completely different than any other type of witness, because he was actually sent by God to be a witness. And additionally, while the apostles are also witnesses, they are witnesses of what they have seen and heard. John the Baptist is out there testifying, even though he hasn't seen him at all. He's a witness without even having seen, just received this information from God. But in these verses, John, um, or excuse me, uh, John the Baptist serves as one who is, who is speaking about this light who is to come. And then later in this, in this chapter, Jesus is speaking to priests and Levites, or excuse me, John is speaking to priests and Levites. And he tells about himself saying that he is the voice crying out in the wilderness spoken of in Isaiah. He is that one who calls out uh, and, and sets the path straight for the coming of this king to prepare God's people for a light that is greater than Moses. Grace and truth greater than the law, the light of man. That's what John the Baptist is coming here to do. Let's read verse 14, 14 and 15. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a rank higher than I, for he existed before me. What's brought out here is that this light, this word, didn't just come to observe man, his creation. He didn't just come to observe man from the bosom of the Father in heaven, as we read back in verse 18. He didn't just come to observe man uh, just from the earth, as it alludes to in verse 10. No, the light, the word, the Christ became man, became flesh. Jesus, the Word, became flesh. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He became His creation. Again, not that He was created, but He became His creation. Philippians 2 and verse 7 says, Jesus emptied Himself to the point of a bondservant. He came to be His creation as well as serve His creation. And both John the Baptist and John the Apostle were witnesses of the Word becoming flesh. They saw Jesus in the flesh. Uh, John the Apostle says that the Word dwelt among us, him being one of the apostles. He dwelt among us. We saw him. And then he says that he saw his glory as the only begotten. Now, the word begotten is not a word we use all too often. However, we are pretty familiar with it. John 3.16 uses that phrase, uh, and, and the whole world is familiar with that particular passage. Now, we think of the word begotten as in like he, it's the only one, and that's certainly a part of it. But the word begotten also uh, communicates this idea as one of a kind. So he says, it's verse 14, glory as the only begotten from the Father. This one-of-a-kind glory. That's what John is witnessing. He sees this one-of-a-kind glory, glory that had never been seen before, which is, which is really saying something considering some of the glorious things that we read about in Scripture. I picture Moses at Mount Sinai, all the great things that he saw then. But this is glory that had never been seen before. 
And perhaps this is alluding to the transfiguration. I mentioned before that John doesn't mention the transfiguration. Maybe this is an allusion to that, which would make sense considering John did witness that. Um, John the Apostle was there, and at that transfiguration, he sees Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus as, as his garments are shining with white light. Peter, James, and John are totally amazed at everything that they had seen. John truly beheld the glory of Jesus in that event, the only begotten. Both of these Johns, John the Apostle and John the Baptist, testify about the greatness of the Word. But then John the Baptist adds to his testimony, like he had done in verse 8, saying that the light is greater than me. Because, because I think he's alluding to, because he is the source of light. That's why the light is greater, because he is the source of light, as explained back in verse 4. And he says that the Word existed before me. Which is interesting, because if you think of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is uh, is cousin of, of Jesus, and he quite literally was born before Jesus. So John the Baptist actually existed before Jesus, in the literal sense, right? But I think he understands that's not what we're talking about here. He's referring back to verse 1, where, where John the Baptist recognizes that Jesus has always been. He was with God, and He is God. Jesus is eternal. And then later in the chapter, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, twice he says to his apostles, when he is actually witnessing what he is seeing, he looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. John's gospel serves um, and provides several testimonies meant to reveal who Jesus really is. And here in the prologue, John the Apostle gives you a taste of of what is to come uh, in this book. And to this point, to this point, we have seen that Jesus is God. He's the eternal creator of all things. He's the light and life of man. He's the perfect manifestation of grace and truth. He's the word that became flesh. He has this one-of-a-kind glory. He's greater than the law and the prophets and John the Baptist. He is the Lamb of God. He is all these great things. And yet, this isn't the main point of what John is trying to communicate. With all of this in mind, I believe what John is trying to get to is what he talks about in verses 10 through 13. Are you going to receive him or not? Will you receive him or not? Let's read verses 10 through 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 11 says that he came to his own. This word, the word that became flesh, became a human being like you and me, came to his own, implying, I believe, that he came with a a purpose. Not just simply to live among us, to just kind of see what being human is like for a while. But he came to his own to bring them out of darkness, to provide a means of being reborn, to become new children, not children of flesh and blood like before, but children of God, as verses 12 to 13 states. Jesus didn't look down on his creation, just kind of hoping that they would eventually find him at some point. Nor did he just throw down a map and say, hey, good luck, I hope you get here. But Jesus came to his own. 
came to His own to bring us closer to Him, with the intent to guide us and to bring us to Him. And to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, a right that we did not have on our own. And verse 13 says that we can become children of God, this wonderful right, not because of blood, not because of flesh, and not because of the will of man. This great change that was going to come, this great rebirth that was going to come, has nothing to do with your bloodline, which I think is especially important to uh, Jews that would have been reading this. Look, this has nothing to do with the fact that you are a part of the, uh, the family of Abraham. That doesn't make you a part of, of this new kingdom. It's going to be aside from that. It's not going to be connected to your blood anymore, which I think we should think a lot about as well. We are not children of God because our parents are children of God. We are not somehow a part of this kingdom just because our parents are faithful. Their faithfulness hopefully comes down to, to your faithfulness. We talked about that last week. But at the same time, that is not inherent. You have to choose for yourself whether you are going to take advantage of this right that has been given to you. And it has nothing to do with the works of the flesh. Like the number of good things that you do in your life. It's not like you can do all these great things, present this to God and say, hey, did I do it? Can you let me in now? It's nothing like that. And it has nothing to do with your own determination. Just because you really, really want it doesn't mean that you can become a child of God. It certainly starts there. It certainly starts with seeking Him. But just your own determination isn't going to do it. You can be in the best family. You can do a number of great things. You can really desire to overcome darkness or sin. But this alone does not grant us the right to be children of God. Jesus has given us that right. Jesus became flesh to bring man out of flesh. Something that we could not do on our own. But it says that his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. What? How? How could his own not receive him? How could they not recognize their own creator? I mean, there was a guy who was yelling, testifying, telling everyone about, hey, there's going to be this guy who's going to do these things, and yet they totally ignore him? How, how can that be? How could they not receive him? Well, what about, what about us? Will we receive him? In Jesus' day and the years since, people have both received and rejected Jesus. And though people might claim a number of reasons why they have received Him or, or, or rejected Him, I think it really just comes down to one. But it's not because of how Jesus looked. It wasn't because of His appearance. It wasn't because they didn't fit this model of what they wanted. Certainly that kind of fits in there. Even though I'm sure His appearance was different than what they anticipated. Maybe they anticipated something kind of out of this world, maybe something more like, you know, goat hair and eating locusts and wild honey and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe that's what they expected. Or maybe they expected something more like King Saul, being head and shoulders above everybody. Well, Jesus didn't fit that. But I don't think that serves as the reason to reject him or accept him. And I don't think it had anything to do with where he was from, even though I think that was uh, rather confusing to them. Nathaniel famously says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Certainly, like his appearance, his hometown wasn't anything glamorous. And with that, he didn't come with all this pomp and circumstances, great prestige or anything like that, which they perhaps they anticipated. But that doesn't serve as a reason to reject him or to accept him. 
And I don't think it even has to do with his, his signs necessarily. Even though, even though John's gospel makes, makes uh, very clear, there's a number of times where uh, Jesus does something miraculous and it says that people believe. John chapter 12, coming right after he has uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember that? Uh, there's this triumphal entry. He comes riding in on a donkey. You remember what everyone there is doing? Thousands of people there are shouting, Hosanna. And even though the text doesn't lay this out explicitly, it's, it, it's my belief... I, I think many of those same people who were there at the triumphal entry shouting Hosanna were some of the same people at his death who were shouting crucify him. Was it the signs that caused them to believe and follow? No, it wasn't the signs. Ultimately, whether you will receive or, ex- or receive or reject Jesus is contingent on his words. That serves as the basis for receiving or denying Him. Go to John chapter 6. I want to finish there. In John chapter 6, you get the story of of Jesus feeding over 5,000 people. Wonderful story. And it says in verse 14, they're like, this is is the prophet. There was a, a, a certain level of belief that they had in Jesus because of this great miracle that he did. And you know what? There's a certain level of following that they're doing. They even cross over the Sea of Galilee just to try and find him. They finally find him. And you know what Jesus says? He says, you seek me, which is interesting. Uh, if you go back to John chapter one, he asks his disciples and say, why do you seek me? He says, we want to know where, or, or what do you seek? He's like, we want to know what, where you're staying, implying, hey, we want to follow you. But Jesus says here, in chapter 6, he says, You seek me, in verse 26, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It wasn't about the signs. You were following me just for what you could get yourselves. But Jesus still seizes this opportunity. He sees that people are there, and so he teaches them. He starts to talk to them about some pretty difficult things. He talks to them about this bread from heaven that was going to give them life, and what a wonderful thing that is. You think he's going to explain, well, how can I get this life? How can I get this bread from heaven? But then he tells them in verse 58, he says about himself that they got to, you you eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And then he says in verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Heaven. It's not like that manna from before. Not as the fathers ate and died. No, this is different. He who eats this bread will live forever. Eat of my body? Drink of my blood? Well, this causes the listeners to question among themselves. They don't really understand what it is that he's saying, or perhaps they don't like the implications of it. In verse 66, says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not following him anymore, or walking with him anymore. Ultimately, it was the words of Jesus that caused the people to deny him and walk away. But, conversely, if you keep reading in John chapter 6, those who did receive him, as it states in verse 68, after Jesus asked, hey, you don't want to go as well, do you? And Jesus, or excuse me, Peter famously says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
It's the words of Jesus that convicts Peter. He sees that Jesus has the words of eternal life. These words that can truly give me life, the life and light of man. It comes through Jesus. Will you believe? Or will you deny him? It's ultimately going to be because of the things that he says, these words of eternal life that he is giving. Well, like any uh, good study, any uh, a book, you're going to find a thesis statement of some kind. It's like, hey, here's really what we're talking about. Well, John kind of saves his thesis statement all the way to the very end. He says in verse 31 of chapter 20, these have been written so that you might believe. That's the goal. John has written all these things so that you might believe. But believe what? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. John wants you to have life. John wants you to believe, but what is it that you have to believe but his words? In this prologue, John wants his readers, I believe, to dwell on these, these middle verses. Will you receive him or not? Are you going to receive the word, the life and light of man, Jesus the Christ? Which is it going to be? These stories in John have been preserved so that you would believe. And if you already believe, that you would believe even more. Well, this prologue ends in a pretty uh, peculiar way in verse 18. We read it before. I'll read it again. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, not all versions render it this way, but you'll see it at the very end. That word, Him... That word him is in, in italics, which means that it was inserted by the translators, which means that in Greek, which it was originally written in, that word him isn't actually there. So really, it just reads, he has explained, which I would imagine troubled uh, the translators a good bit because there's no object to that verb. He's explained what? What does he explain? And so they insert him, which I have no problem with because God certainly has explained Jesus. But I, I want to read it as that as that sentence fragment. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained dot, dot, dot. Almost as if he's inviting you, come see. Come and see what God has explained. Come and see who this Jesus really is. Come and see all these great things that Jesus has given to all those who choose to believe in his name. Come and see. This morning we have read and we have seen that Jesus is God. That He was not created, but created everything in this world. And out of His love for His creation, He became man. He dwelt among man. But His creation rejected Him. To the point of death on the cross. But this was done for the purpose of making man into a new creation. Not of flesh and blood, but of the will of God. And this applies to you and me. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? For those of you who don't believe, I do hope that this particular passage, John 1 verses 1 through 18, has, has provoked you to want to see what God has explained. To read the gospel more. And if you want someone to read with, I would be happy to read it with you. John's gospel lays out exactly who Jesus is. But do not neglect the fact that it is demanding something of you. A commitment of one way or the other. Do you believe? 
If you do, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. All things are ready for you to make that commitment. If this applies to you, please come up now while we stand and while we sing. Nothing, all things for Jesus, but love.